Welcome to the 4 for Friday podcast. I'm Will Robb. He's Michael Girdley. Our guest today is Matthew Ford. He's on for the second week in a row. We had some audio issues last week, so we decided to re-record this, uh, this session. Michael, would you like to walk everybody through the format? Yes. I would also like to have a, a discussion about our newly found high standards. Given we had none before, it is impressive that we were like, no, that's not good enough. We have to re-record it this week. And then thank you to thank you to Mr. Ford for coming back and uh, indulging us with making another run at it. So, uh, so I, I, I on the bright say, side, uh, you're the first guest to get to come on twice. And I, I had such a good time last week, but I've got to feel like the audio issues was just you making fun of my accent. Oh, nobody can understand him. Let's just 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 wipe it out. That's the deal. Start again. <laughs> Get him back on so we could laugh again at him. That's the deal. Yeah. It was it was a good episode. I'm just sorry that the microphones let us down. It was such a bummer. So anyway, the um, the format is the same as it is every week. We get together and uh, we talk through four topics uh, phrased as questions. And uh, we do it every Friday. So four for Friday is what we call it. And uh, we're excited to have a guest today. So Matthew Ford, love for you to spend one minute or less introducing yourself. Oh, wow. That, that's now you didn't tell me the challenge of getting. Okay. Um, Matt Ford, I've been friends with Michael and Will for a number of years now. A uh, bit of a mixed background, came to the US 20 years ago. Uh, currently work in healthcare, but um, uh, had a mining background, uh, which gave me lots of adventures, but now I'm far more sensible. Okay. Well, maybe we should launch into it with our first question. Let's hear it. I'll shoot. Uh, Matthew, why is English food so bad? Or is it? (laughs) I thought I managed to convince you of this last week, but I'm obviously going to have to repeat myself. Um, I think it's much maligned, right? And I was was thinking about this. How can I make this more interesting to Will? And I was talking about, okay, uh, economically, I think it was an economic damage that has caused the the, uh, maligning of English food. And that, you know, um, my personal theory is that World War II, right? It devastated the the English economy and we never really recovered. So we had rationing and then you had the advent of TV dinners and then... um, uh, obviously, uh, sort of a, the restaurants just weren't a thing. So there was no real celebration of English food until, you know, Jamie to Oliver showed up and then said, hey, this looks really good. But if you look historically, uh, English food is, is uh, uh, or British food, I should say, is, is incredibly diverse. And um, there's so much to enjoy about it. Um, first things first, this variety, there's huge variety simply because we're no more than 80 miles from the ocean. Everywhere's got uh, fresh water, lakes, etc. Everywhere's got, um, and the topography, topology changes throughout the nation. So you can grow different things. You can uh, make different things. There's intense regionality. You know, Kent's popular for fruit and uh, hops and beers. And then, um, uh, you know, I don't know, Wales is popular for, is a good place for growing lamb. Uh, West country is very good for dairy. Uh, Angle, uh, East Anglia is good for arable farming. So you can sort of go around the country and say, okay, well, there's all these different things from different places. Uh, so which just gave a, an immense variety to it, which is an exceptionally poor job of celebrating it. We've also got the impact of seasons because, you know, there's four distinct seasons. So when one food was in, in full flow, you had to 
preserve it for the next and um or you know make the most of it at the time you know what do you do with four thousand apples because there's nothing more english than apple pie so you know you've got to you got to be able to do all these things with it and preserve them for the winter and then you also have to say food for food for purpose what do you, How do you well so what would you say is the most the most prototypical english food like if i had you know like america it's the hamburger right like i think that's pretty straightforward um, what is what is the thing that I should tie to my connotation of what makes English food English? Haggis, <laughs> that eel thing that you guys eat. Oh man! Well, I thought haggis uh, was Scottish. I, mean, I don't can't keep track of this stuff. <laughs> well, one haggis is Scottish, but yes, uh, but you know, having a, putting something inside a a stomach and then cooking it is not is hardly the exclusive domain of the Scots. Right, uh, Nestle Road pudding is a good example. If you want to make a decent Christmas Nestle Road pudding, it's made out of Italian chestnuts put inside a uh, sheep's stomach and then kind of frozen or chilled, and then you know, bo boil it for hours and then add lots of uh, raisins and um, sultanas and things like that, and dried fruit. So, you know, the dried uh, fruit from uh, from, from autumn. Put it all into a big sort of as they put it into a stomach cook it it cook it and then um and then chill it and uh quite delightful i should imagine if you're that far uh but what would be the quintessential uh, it's going to depend where you are right it really is going to depend where you are you know you've got a whole series of foods that are associated with the location so if you take a cheese you know we all know cheddar but you, cheddar is a place you'll know wednesdaydale but wednesdaydale is a place if you um if you're in London, then it'll be jelly deals, but also depend on the period. You know, the reason we're eating jelly deals was because they were just about the only protein source that would live in the Thames because, you know, by the time Thames got so polluted that it couldn't support basically any other life except eels, that became the protein source for, for Londoners, that and oysters, huh. because in the Astro. Huh. Very interesting. I didn't. There's a lot of very interesting factoids there. Um, all right, well, I think that was great. <laughs> so we think English food is good, just underrated. Oh, you guys froze for a second. Did you say something funny? You both look like you said something funny. No, we're laughing. Uncelebrated, and, and we thought that was funny. <laughs> so there, there we have it, 15 centuries of fantastic English cuisine. Well, totally derailed by World War II. Exactly, exactly. But also, you know, look at English food from sort of the franchise model. I was thinking this for you, Will, because, uh, you know, interestingly, Will, when I discovered that you're an economist, your interest level went up enormously. So I thought, oh, I've got to talk to Will about this. But, you know, like pubs would have been an original franchise model if that's, uh, you know. Uh, because they were sort of essentially owned by the breweries and then leased by the landlord to to sell and promote the brewery's beer. So, just well, that's great. Well, let's move on to another bit of American and English living. Uh, this question for me: uh, What is it like to be an Englishman living in America? Do we have any Englishmen here today? So, Matthew, what is it like to be an Englishman living in America? Well, the first thing is to be mistaken for Australian everywhere you go all the time. Um, so that's that's number one. As I say, I've been I've been here 20 years. I get asked every single day if I am Australian 
And uh, so by my reckoning, that's about the same question over 7,000 times. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a good question, but uh, no, uh, I'm English. The main thing is, though, I think you get treated with this deference that is totally undeserved. So because I've got this funny accent, people say, oh, he's English. He must, must know what he's talking about. So I get to come on podcasts and talk about food and uh, <laughs> and pontificate off the cuff did did you keep the accent on purpose no it's 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 locked in uh interesting thing um it seems like you once you males seem to get their accents locked in my wife was in the foreign service and uh she, when like locals you know they they're just fantastic accent etc the men just could not get the accent in any way shape or form we just happened to be in monterey and you just hear this hear the the line officer saying things like you know yo quiero uno taco bell por favor and <laughs> the conjugation would be perfect the uh, you know their vocabulary would be huge their accent would be disastrous so, you know, so I think men get to the point where just the accent is locked in and it's not changing. What I have changed enormously is the slang. So uh, if I spoke to you using the same vernacular that I used in high school, you would have no clue, none whatsoever. It, it would, it, you would have no idea what I was saying um, because we, our, our language is so heavily uh based in slang, I think, in, 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 a, in, in many ways, um, that I had to sanitize all that slang because Americans don't seem to, I want to say, um, the, the context of the word often doesn't, the, the word is enough to distract and, and the context clues are not really um, uh, picked, picked up upon. So we have to, you know, a common thing amongst, yeah, I think probably all foreigners, we have to just dump the slang. Two languages, you know, or two people separated by common language. We just got to dump the slang. So, um, yeah, I'd, all the vernacular that I would have used has now been completely sanitized uh, from, uh, from, from, my, from my daily language. Do your, uh, do your English friends and counterparts, uh, have they started to notice your accent shifting towards slightly American? Do they call, call it out and stuff? Oh, my mum's horrified. My mum's horrified. <laughs> and the first time she heard my daughter say water instead of water, um, she's like, I want a plane. I'm coming over. We're sorting it out, right? You know, <laughs> get this fixed. But uh, uh, yes and no. Yes. Um, but it takes, me, it takes me a few seconds to sort of roll back into uh, the, the, say, the, it's the vernacular that's bigger than, than necessarily the accent. It's just, you know, the substitution of words. I was trying to demonstrate this to my, you know, to, to my daughter's friends, actually, they were asking. And uh, I had this, you know, I used to see if I can think of the, remember the sentence. Um, okay, so the trouble gave me a bell on the dog, said her plates were given a jip. She needed me to pick up the, the jam jar, take her down the rubber dub dub for a, 
<laughs> pig's ear and a ruby, right? Now, it if sounds I said like that, English, but I have no idea what you're talking about. If I said that to my friends from high school, they it would be, it would be absolutely comprehensible. But what we got is this, you know, the, the rhyming slang that you probably heard of, like the Cockney rhyming slang, is usually you take a single word and, and replace it with a two-word phrase. The second word rhymes with the word that you replaced, all right? But of course, replacing every one word with two words is a real pain. So you drop the second word. The problem is the second word is the word that rhymes with the word that you're trying to say. So in that sentence, I said, uh, the wife gave, uh, sorry, the trouble gave me a bell on the uh, bell on the dog, right? So the trouble is the trouble and strife, which is obviously wife, um, gave me a bell, and this should be slang, gave me a ring on the dog, which is dog and bone for phone. Uh, the plates, a plates of meat, her feet are giving her jip, which just means they're causing her trouble. And she wanted me to pick her up the jam, jam jar, being car, uh, take her down the frog, down the frog and toad would be road to the rubber dub dub, obviously the pub, uh, for a pig's ear, which would be beer, and and a ruby. Ruby Murray is a curry. So what I really said was, my wife gave me a call on the phone. She asked me to, she said her feet were hurting, and if I could pick her up and take her out to the pub for a, a nice drink and a sophisticated dinner, and uh, that's that was that. So. And they would have absolutely have got that from that sentence. All right. Did everybody take notes on how that worked? <laughs> so, 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 so when I say I had to sanitize a lot of language, you just got to take all that stuff out because otherwise people don't know what you're talking about, bizarrely. So. <laughs> okay. Should, should we move on to our next question, Michael? I think it's you. Sure. Let's do it. Um, all right. Is remote work good or bad for the average American worker? So is remote work good or bad for the average American worker? So Will, what do you think? I think it's good. Yeah, why? Uh, I think more, more freedom, more choices is good for the American worker if they can work from home, uh, if they can work from some office that is more convenient for, for them compared to a a downtown office in a, in a giant uh, central business district. Uh, I think those options are good. It, it frees people up to live in, in places other than the giant cities. And a lot of people have a preference for that. Mm. So I think uh, overall it's good. I think there is kind of a process we're all going through it and going to have to go through as this continues about balancing work and life and having boundaries around like, yes, I know my office is right downstairs in the basement, but I'm not taking calls right now because it's Saturday evening. Uh, how, how do you think about the ability of companies to offshore more work and how would that affect the American worker? Like, is that is that a possibility? Like you see more companies going remote Right? Like is, are they suddenly the American worker going to be competing with employees in all these third world countries that will work for less? Well, maybe, uh, or it might open employers eyes up into the idea that, well, I don't have to offshore to a third world country. I can, I can, uh, offshore to Reno, Nevada or South Dakota or someplace where the incomes are not as high and there's opportunity, mm -hmm. uh, to find skilled workers. Is that not really taking place in a significant way, though? 
in sort of to, in terms of I mean look at say San Antonio is largely a very uh, light blue color work town right so you know it's already been uh, pushed to uh, that kind of remote work has already been pushed to these towns and yeah and and the places that you mentioned I think it's continuous I think that's happening all the time I think 2020 is a is a big push in that direction. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I would, you know, I would agree that, you know, remote work in, in a lot of ways is, can be very uh, useful to the work, but I think we've got to look at this, you know, far more holistically for so many people is just, and just so hard um, to deal with, uh, particularly this, this obviously situation, COVID slightly difficult, different in that children are home. Um, you know, you, you might both be working from home if it's if you can remote work by choice uh, and you have the right facilities and the right kind of job that it lends itself to yeah absolutely fabulous knock yourself out but uh you know so many of us find a situation i mean i've got a lot of employees who are um either parents or single parents and being forced into that remote work environment um, is it, just extremely hard, extremely hard, extremely stressful. Uh, yes, the work can get done uh, and yes, they can make it happen, but trying to do it whilst educating two children and um, making sure they're staying in front of their screen and they're getting their work done, etc. I just, uh, you know, these are tough times to consider uh, remote work in one block. I don't think you can look at it um, you've got to sort of segment out, pass out those people that's going to be appropriate for and those people that's just going to be, it's just extremely hard to make happen. And then you've got those like me who are just not particularly, you know, disposed to working at home. I work at home, but, you know, there's just a lot more interesting things to do at home. So, hey, (laughs) (laughs) my barbecue needs cleaning. So, uh, you know, yeah, I'm working, kind (laughs) of. I work Uh, in the office, by the way. It is interesting. I'm, you know, I'm running searches for roles and, you know, being involved in entrepreneurial things. And, you know, we're, we're starting to run all these searches to be totally location agnostic, where it's like, well, mm-hmm. if you happen to live here in San Antonio or be willing to move, it's a bonus, but we're not making anybody do it. And uh, it's really powerful, at least for senior level hires, because suddenly your universe of places you can choose from is, is so different and your ability to make a match and the hiring market is, is so much better. Um, but it does feel like we're going down a path where like, I'm going to be involved in stuff where we do global searches, right. Where I'm going to be looking at candidates from England or Canada and all these places. It's, it's, it feels like it's going to put pressure on the American worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's just the way it has to go because if you don't do it, you end up with a bunch of crud in the system and eventually it falls apart. But you know, it, it is, it is something that's on my mind and it may not happen sooner, but it feels like it's going to happen at some point. I mean, that's also sort of potentially majorly disruptive, isn't it? To the whole economy of America, you know, the whole American workforce economy. Uh, think about um, the stickiness of employment in the U S I mean, we're in this one and one, one side, we, you know, swear by supply side economics and the freedom of movement of labor and goods and services and it all sort of descending to the cheapest location to make something happen where you have an abundance that moves to the place of need right. Um, but in employment, we have incredible stickiness to positions simply because of healthcare 
right? If you're if you're an American worker and you've got good healthcare in your job, you're not leaving it. You know, you're not. It's it's a major factor in how you move. Um, now, if we start getting to the point where we can remote work, stroke offshore dramatically, as Michael said, and I think there's a certain inevitability to it. What's going to happen? You know, the labor cost is going to potentially drop because of all of these ancillary factors that were, are tied to their employment, whether it's a, you know, the retirement funds or the um, or healthcare or other aspects that are tying them to that position. As an employer, if you don't have to foot those bills, then you know, why wouldn't you make that move? I mean, Michael, you're in a prime, prime position where you're saying, OK, well, I'm going to search globally. And if I pick up somebody in Canada, I don't have any healthcare costs. Right. I don't have any if, if, I, if you're offering them, I don't have those new health care costs. I don't have yep. a 401k cost and everybody becomes a uh, uh, becomes an independent employee. Yep. And, you know, how what does that mean for the American healthcare system? Just as a just sort of throwing that out there. Well, you're the economist. You tell us you have the answer. Yeah, I, I, my days as an economist are kind of far behind me. I don't know that I have all the answers on that stuff. I do feel it's important to point out that there's a, there are pretty big chunks of the economy that uh, don't work for remote work. In the, in the world of phone calls and emails and, and spreadsheets and software, it works pretty well. But there are plenty of blue-collar jobs, plumbers, electricians, uh, carpenters, uh, cleaners. All these types of jobs are specific to going to the place and touching the thing. So they, they require some more hands-on um, labor that, that you can't do from your own home or from a, an obscure office somewhere that you actually have to go to the place where the work is. So I think that's, that's part of it. When we think about this, let's uh, remember that huge chunks of the economy aren't doing remote work right now. Yep. Well, let's move on to uh, question number four. That is you, Will. Okay, so we might be able to tie in the, the remote work or not remote work on this question. When purchasing a piece of land for the mineral rights, how do you determine the price and how do you determine the value? Wow. Uh, okay, so remote work, I mean, you get the 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 line is you know you look look for elephants in elephant country. So remote work it tends to be remote because you got to go to wherever the mineral resources are. So <laughs> by default, you're heading off to remote remote areas, but not necessarily in the in the way that we have been talking about it. Um, right, a lot of the sort of mineral property work is like the ultimate in the inefficient markets because it's so obscure and it's the risk is so extraordinarily high and this whole process is a man is is a a deal in managing your risk um and that risk comes in many forms obviously it's is the stuff even there uh then it's going to be you know political risk it's going to be uh, environmental risk it's going to be native population risk it's going to be local population risk it's going to be legal risk it's going to be you know just a whole suite of things all of those presumably come into the uh, will, you know obviously come into the valuation process in known areas the valuation process is uh, much like real estate you're going to do a comparative market. And that is this here on trend in Nevada, where you're going for gold, everybody's found gold on that same zone. And 
you look like you're a logical extension of where the previous deposits have been found. You're going to do, you know, and, and there's a reasonable market for the turnover of the properties. You're going to have a, a, a reasonable guess at what you should be paying per acre and how much you're going to be buying. Uh, once you start moving into true greenfield sites, then it, it's all over the shop in terms of what you're going to pay and how much you're going to pay, pay for it. Uh, it's also going to depend on what you're looking for. Um, you know, gold, which would mean might be, and then so what you're looking for and how much land you're going to need to buy. Because obviously, if you're looking for a, um, a kind of deposit that is going to require a great deal of um, uh, space to mine it, for example, you'd get a, say, a low grade copper deposit requires a mammoth amount of land to be able to produce enough copper to make, to make the mine worthwhile. Um, but a very high grade gold deposit you would take out in the, you know, basically as a tunnel, right? So it's a very, very, very focused mining. Um, but you've seen you know, pictures of places like Bingham Canyon where they've just removed a mountain to get, you know, get to get the copper. Um, so how much you're gonna pay for it? Uh, it really depends on what you're looking for where you're looking for it, what the local situation is going to be to that, how much in demand that particular commodity is, because once the commodity gets in demand, then everything spikes, even though you are looking many years into the future before you get to actual production. So, uh, and then you're gonna try and offset a lot of that risk by, by doing sort of work-ins or earnings or giving a certain expenditure until you need to raise money again to do more work. So what typically happens with uh, mining, and say so I'm gonna differentiate it from oil a bit. I mean, oil by and large, if you know where you're going or you've got an idea where you're going, you're gonna put the drilling machine on and you're gonna be, the, the, the very act of exploration is almost the act of production. You drill down and oil comes out the top. With mining, what you do is you basically find what you're looking for and then you try and expand what you found and then you try and uh, improve your knowledge of what you found by going back year after year and doing more detailed drilling and mapping and uh, uh, modeling of that particular deposit. So mining, might, you might be, if you make a good discovery, which is exceptionally rare, if you make a good discovery, it could be typically 20 years before that, that, um, that project comes into production. So it's... Uh, so you have years and years of negative cash flows before you start to reap the return on the minerals? Well, if you're, <laughs> the company has years and years of negative cash flows. Yeah. <laughs> the management might not. Um, <laughs> including the salaries of the managers. <laughs> the the investor has years of negative cash flows. The investor has years of negative cash flows. Yeah, the company itself. I mean, uh, it's funny if you if you went and looked at the exploration and mining uh, exploration company, I should say, and you look at their um, <laughs> and you open up their financial statements, you can say, well, there's only two of them here. They've got a balance sheet and they've got a cash flow statement. Where's the income statement? And it, you know, and it really boils down to the fact that there is no income. I mean, obviously they got costs on that side but you're looking for that income line and it's just just isn't there you know just just isn't there because there is no income it's all it's all funded it's it's basically all just spending you just keep spending until you find something and then you're just swinging for the fence and hoping that uh, 
that you connect with a ball and it goes over the fence. So does the balance sheet change over time as you discover more about the minerals that are or are not there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You have to, you have to bring your, make some kind of estimate of value to some degree of what that project is and how much it's worth. And some of that is going to be dependent on how successful you've been with exploration, what you've been able to, um, and be careful with the wording, what you've been able to discover and how, because uh, proven probable, et cetera, is, is all kind of technical terms, but how much you've discovered, how much confidence you have in what you've discovered dictate how much you carry on the balance sheet for. Uh, and, then, uh, and then other than that is cash. So really what it boils down to a lot of the time with these companies is you're looking at how much cash do they have per share and quite often you'd hope they were actually trading somewhere in the vicinity of more cash per share than their current trading value. So um, at certain times of the sort of the, of the cycle, you can actually go in and like literally sweep up these companies and release that cash per share because they raised a lot of money at a higher price, the market tanked, and now they're sitting with quite a lot of cash on their books, but um, and, and, and perhaps not too much to do with it. So actual cash per share is, is sometimes higher than the share price. But I haven't really given you a good answer as to uh, how do you price them. The pricing is just is just highly subjective. It's where you are, what you've got, how much risk you've got to be, and how much risk you're willing to take on. I mean, uh, you know, you're looking at a nickel project in New Caledonia, and you discover that it's actually run under Napoleonic law. So uh, there becomes a whole load of set of liabilities for the CEO who's sitting in San Antonio because, or Denver, because there's a sort of a look through and you haven't got the same protections that you might have had if you'd been under American law or whatever it might be. And so, you know, if something happens in New Caledonia, do you be, um, and uh, an employee dies or there's some other issue, you know, are you now personally liable? So it's just a whole load of very obscure risks that you are trying to estimate. So does it wind up coming down to just like a heuristic sense of what the land should cost, kind of price per pound or gut feeling kind of valuation? Yeah. Um, so often you're just looking at a piece of land and you're saying, okay, I'm going to hope we're going to hit something or we've hit a grade and this could get optimistic. And if it was this big, and the arm waving is fantastic, right? You know, I mean, if fishermen could arm wave like this, they would fly, right? It's just, it's just, this, oh, it's this big and, you know, this wide and there's so much of it. And all we got to do is put another 400 drill holes into it at a cost of 25 million and uh, we'll have this huge deposit. And, you know, three years later, it's, it's all panned out into nothing. So it's, inc it's incredibly risky, incredibly risky. Uh, but when it hits, it hits in a very, very big way. Yeah, I would have to to justify uh, all that risk and all the, the negative cash flows associated with it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what you're, I mean, a way of looking at the stocks is often it looks as like sort of a, a call option on the underlying commodity. So if copper goes up and you've got some copper explorers, they all tend to lift very, well, at least historically, they've all lifted very quickly um, as copper prices has has uh, gone up right or zinc price or lead price or whatever so you're always looking at what the underlying commodity is doing if gold goes up gold explorers go up as everybody sort of pumps money into them um and then they they fall again just as fast 
So it's always considered to be a rent the stock rather than own it. Timing play always, huh? Just hope that always you get, catch the timing. <laughs> get in, get out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Speaking of which, we're we're reaching in time for today. I think we did great. <laughs> I, really I just like being able to hear Will this week. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> and we all we all showed up on time. Yeah, and the, and uh, in inappropriate outfits. I mean, Will looks like Mountain Man. I look like. This is how I normally dress. This isn't a costume. Is that how you normally dress? That's yeah, co- absolutely. That's Colorado chic. <laughs> but it's, it's it's coordinated with the background, so it's lovely. Good day, mate. <laughs> Thank you. Good day. Uh.